0: I've spoken about this on multiple occasions this night particular uh, is my first time to to do it this way and in fact some of the things I'll tell you um, it's 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 taking me a lot of research to get to this point I will say that as a warning be careful when you Google a subject a lot of things online are not true It's the opinion of people. So just because you read it doesn't mean it's right. Um, especially when you get to Wikipedia or other descriptions, people write books, they post this online. There's a a lot of contradictions to things online. So I just want you to be cognitive of that, that there are, um, there are some very new modern concepts of scripture that are not necessarily correct. Um, in February, I had the opportunity to go with some missionaries and a couple of elders, district superintendents, to London. And um, we went into very old, old bookstores, that some of which do not sell books to people. They sell them on eBay. And, of course our nation is a baby nation uh, compared to england and europe and so a lot of the books that i held in my hand were 5 and 600 years old they were very fragile and we we um i perused through them and i had boxes of books sent back home here those writings that were 3 or 400 years old as i read them the 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 writing of the english is is more poetry than what you and I would read. It's poetic in form. But it's not poet. It's not a, it's not it's not poetry, but it the way that they describe sentences, words, or adjectives, adverbs, or conjunctions, very different than how we write today. I would like to just preface the night by saying on almost every other lesson and sermon. I will present to you a thought that will be applicable for you. That means that I'll say something from the Bible or preach a biblical narrative character and then we'll get to apply it to our lives. Tonight, there's no catch. If there's something that applies to your life, praise God, we'll grab it. But my intent is not to do that. My intent is to give you a study. This is a study on the steps of Jesus Christ to the cross of Calvary. We're just studying these steps. On your paper, there's no fill in the blanks. So there's no right or wrong answer. And no one will spell check you unless you're sitting next to someone who knows better. I'm going to give you a few things that, that... as I describe them, I may go back to the people that are there and I may describe some other, other people or places that are not on your, your handout. But I think that this is important for our church today. And in fact, it's critical for all churches to know this. Although I will say as a, as a lament, many, many places have dumbed down the scripture. So that instead of describing Jesus in the Bible, they will simply say, it's all about love. And that's it. I don't need to know anything more. Well, the Bible says, First John says that God is love. And it's a wonderful description. But if you'll open up the Bible, you'll find out about his love and the steps of his love. And so there's so much more than the watered-down, diluted version of modern Christianity. We have a lot to our disposal, and we need to know what it is. So tonight, I'm not presenting something that's applicable or something you can say, wow, that spoke to my life. Um, This is about his life. This is about the life of Jesus Christ. I'm telling that in a in a in a story, I'll I'll try to get to some of this now that even at the best, and I'll and I won't labor long here tonight, but whatever I get through, I will not cover the entirety of the life and the steps of Jesus Christ. So I want to just cover a few things for you, and perhaps God will allow us some greater insight into what happened. Um During these days, Jesus has come in the form of a very common individual in the Jewish community. He is not a standout individual of differing heights or facial features. He doesn't have a particular beauty or mark that would signify he's the Messiah. When the people looked at him, they wouldn't see someone who was ostentatious or, or talented. But there was something about his words that arrested their attention. They would come to sit at his feet as he spoke Literally thousands of people would follow after him. The clamoring of those footsteps through Galilee and then beyond. We have a small glimpse of Jesus Christ at birth and then of his parents' deeds at the age of two, around two years old. And then there's just one snapshot. It's basically a three-day journey when he's 12 years old. His mother and his earthly Father, find him in the temple teaching. He taught, the Bible says, as one who had authority. Now, at 12 years old, most Jewish boys are getting ready to enter manhood. At 13 years old, he would be able to fill the seat for a synagogue in case there were no older men. Jesus will begin his ministry at about 30 years old. His mother preempts his time. And incredibly enough, I've preached about that on several occasions. If you haven't heard it, you can dig up Mary's vindication. It's one of my favorite. That's what I'm going to preach when I go evangelizing. (laughs) Um, That's not on my notes. And so then from that sparks a a call to men, young men, men disregarded by the rabbinical studies. Young men were always wanting to be in a rabbinical class, to have a rabbi. That was the utopia, the top. That was what everyone wanted to be. Maybe in our generation today, I don't know what young guys want to do. Maybe they want to be a basketball star. But if you were rejected by the rabbi, he would tell you, go home and follow your father in his own personal craft. Jesus had a bunch of rejects, young guys that perhaps did not make the rabbinical studies. Now Michelangelo and da Vinci, a few others, Caravaggio, who is my favorite, will draw and paint in motifs and in oil a lot of pictures of the disciples. They were all elderly men. But you didn't have to pay the temple tax until you were nearing your 20s, 21, in the 19 to 21. And there was only one time when we know that a temple tax had to be paid. A temple tax was a half shekel. Peter was the one who said to Jesus, how are we going to pay our taxes? You and I, Lord, and Jesus told Peter, go fishing. Peter went fishing, caught a fish, and there was a there was a shekel in his mouth, enough to pay for their taxes. One whole shekel to pay for both Peter and Jesus, but the others, there's no record of them ever paying the temple tax. Which could be very well in play that the disciples were teenagers. Perhaps the greatest revivals the world has ever seen happen with young people the great kings, the greatest of the kings, were very, very young. And Jesus leads these, these men, this motley crew. He teaches them all the time. When he's not teaching them, he's escaping to the mountain. He took a lot of personal retreats. When he's not doing that, he's teaching crowds of people. He, he his, Most of his ministry is... Based around a, a large lake, which we know as two, in two terms, the Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee. Same body of water. It's, it's about 600 feet below sea level. It's made for storms. Uh, wind currents can draft down, be drafted down into that mountainous range around it and swirl for long periods of time. The Bible will call it the Talmud. When the, when the Lord came on the scene, one of his first things that he did was he went into the temple and he kicked over the money changers. And what was happening was that you had to bring a lamb for your family. This has been going on for hundreds, centuries, centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years. But if you came from far off, perhaps you didn't have the money or you couldn't bring it. So you went to the temple at that point and they would sell you a sacrifice. You would buy it, maybe a turtle dove or a, a sheep, something that you could offer. And the transactions were mostly uh, crude. It leads us to our first character of the steps of the death of Jesus Christ. His name is Annas. Annas is a very interesting man. And Annas is going to see Jesus in a very particular light. Annas is an older man at the time. And he is, at this juncture, he will spend about half of his life uh, in his, maybe 50 years of his life, in his craft. He is, um, he's an unscrupulous man. When we see him later, he's probably in his 80s. Some would say 81 years old. He's held power for about half a century. Annas is a Sadducee. He would be considered a false Christ or a false prophet, really. And Annas is in charge of those in the temple who would bargain and sell. And Jesus criticizes him terribly so. The Lord did not just clean the temple out one time. He did it twice. He did it at the start of his ministry. And he did it about one week before he was betrayed. Before Judas leaned forward and kissed him, he was betrayed. Annas uh, and Jesus had confrontation. The Lord kicked over the money changers again. Annas hated Jesus it was very clear. I would offer this to you that uh, the Bible has been so well preserved and Jewish custom has been so well preserved. The oral law has been given down from generation to generation. Many times the Jews were flung out into wilderness areas. They were often, uh, cast aside, even in the Old Testament, it was a cyclical type of, of thing. They, they would obey God, then they would disobey God, then they would bring up false gods, then, then God would, take his hand of protection away from them deliver them to a host of other people and many other nations would conquer them and imprison them and then they would cry to God and then God would deliver them and then they would serve God for a little while and then they would disobey God round and around and around and when they would disobey God a lot of times those conquering nations would burn everything they would they would take out uh, uh, the the institution, uh, the articles at least of the institution of the of of the Hebrews, and set up their own gods and set up their own own concepts. I think it's important for you to know Caiaphas was familiar with Jesus Christ, and he was the older father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. Now. The material that I could give you is, is long, it's a little laborious, I, I'll be careful. Um, but in those days, they had a governing class of people. And the governing class of people could, could govern wherever they were. If it was a small village, or a few small villages, they might have seven or eight elders which would convene but they would not become a council or a sanhedrin council a sanhedrin council was a council that had a, a at least a bottom number of people 120 men who were the head of families in any local area could have a sanhedrin council the great sanhedrin council would be the council that uh that was in jerusalem that What you read about a Sanhedrin council was the great Sanhedrin council. And the Sanhedrin council would have this. They would have elders, scribes, and they would have priests. 23 elders, 23 scribes, and 23 priests. And then they have two heads, which we would consider maybe a, pres- a president, and then maybe his understudy, which would mean that there would be 71 men altogether that would make up the sanhedrin council 71 men how are we doing with our papers right under loaf of bread and don't forget the milk put se- 71 men so to have a quorum you would need no less in those days 23 men this is going to be very important when we get to the capture of Jesus Christ. And those that quorum in this great Sanhedrin, this chief priest, this elders and scribes and the high priest, uh, they had to have this number. It was very important that they had this particular number. The Sanhedrin council was actually a council... um, that was set up to be a defender of its own people. Um, in fact, the Sanhedrin council was—it was critical that they that they protected people. The axiom of the Sanhedrin Sanhedrin council was this, and I quote: "The Sanhedrin is to save." And there were all types of of levels that the Sanhedrin Council would go to to keep the innocent from being falsely accused and falsely um, uh, executed or, or imprisoned. The Sanhedrin Council was, would not allow themselves, they, they never allow themselves in a capital punishment situation to allow to to have an execution or a or a trial in one single day and in fact if there was an accusation of an individual and 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 it was it was a capital punishment they would skip the middle day if it was if they convened on the first day and it was proven they would do nothing for the second day and they would convene on the third day to come back not only that but on the second day, they would fast. They would not eat. I know this is, a, this is counterintuitive to what we would basically think. But, but if it was unanimous that the person was guilty, he, that person was immediately acquitted. <laughs> I, that doesn't seem right to us. But they believed because there was no one that made a compelling case to save a life. That perhaps that the men on the council had not taken into consideration the life of the individual that was before them. You have to remember that the Jews had been overrun so many times. They had been imprisoned. The empires had risen against them. They had been beaten, sold as slaves. That's why God said to his people, Listen, remember that you were a slave. You were in bondage. So don't ever think you can take and wipe someone out. Because every seven years, I want you to have a year of jubilee. And I want you to return the land that was forfeited. If those men who made terrible deals, if they had a terrible deal, if if, if they were so bad with their money and their land and they got in debt... At the end of their time working for you, you took their land, you gained all the harvest from whatever they had, whatever the merchant was, and they worked for you. On the seventh year, they get to be set free. And in seven sevens, they're going to have two years of jubilee. The 49th year and the 50th year is, the, is like, I don't know how I can tell you, it's like the grand jubilee. It's incredible. Freedom. It's a year of jubilee. The seven sevens, the 49th year is the this massive. And then also it carried over into the 50th year. God wanted his people to be kind to one another. He was so concerned. And he knew that men and women have propensity, mostly men, have the propensity to imprison their brother, to enslave them, to put them in bondage. And so based upon those old laws, even the great Sanhedrin council, made sure that there was always a last-minute moment. Have you ever wondered why there's a telephone? You ever heard about that? A telephone in the execution chambers in the United States? Wherever the execution chambers are, there's another telephone. It's a hotline. It, it is a direct line to the governor's office. If the governor calls five minutes... One second, whatever it is, before the execution. He can stay the execution. They're waiting for the phone call. If that phone rings, wherever it's at. In fact, I don't know if I have my sources right, but someone has said that there there is an individual, his purpose is to watch and listen for the phone. Because there can be a stay. If there's an execution, if there was an execution, handed down by the Sanhedrin council. They would have two men, guards. One would ride a horse and lead, I'm sorry, and and be and, and follow the processional. Follow the processional to the place of execution. Another guard would have a flag and stand at the doorway. And... The man on the horse would constantly look back, look back, look back. If the flag was waved, it stayed the execution because someone came forward and said, maybe, perhaps, there's some new information. They were always trying. The Sanhedrin Council was built to keep people safe, not to kill people, the Sanhedrin, to save a life. So when we get to Jesus Christ, you have to know that laws were broken, there were, there were no less than six trials, three by the Jews and three by the Romans, two by Pilate and one by Herod. And laws were broken to execute, illegally murder and execute an innocent man, Jesus Christ. When I say Jesus Christ, I, I want you to know that, that the, that the, that, the, that the, the, the term Christ is really the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is a self-proclaimed son of God. This Jesus of Nazareth has done nothing wrong. And in the Sanhedrin ways, in the councils of the Sanhedrin, there would never be a district attorney. Nor would there ever be a a defendant's attorney. This is a very interesting thought. We, We have things so backwards, but you have to remember, the Bible was not written... In English and it was not written in a culture designed for our understanding it was written a couple thousand years ago at the earl- at the at the earliest or, or the the earliest maybe if I should say it that way the latest and it was written to a different culture the Hellenistic um, uh, society had had great bearing on the scripture Greek the Greek language Aramaic, uh, uh, Hebrew, and some of the Greek words that we know today, are, they have derivatives, they have multiple meanings, multiple meanings. In fact, when you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. That word for in Greek can mean many w- different words. It can, it can mean to obtain remission of sins. So the reason why we would get baptized is so we can obtain remission of sins. So you have to understand some of these words to make sure you know what's the meaning. Why do I get baptized? So I can receive remission of sins. I can receive it in baptismal waters. So we have to have study to understand the scripture. You can't just blindly read the scripture and the scripture is not, it's not a, the scripture is not a, you can't find it in chicken soup for the soul. The scripture is not, I don't know what the reader's digest version is. There's a genderless Bible. Did you know that? God help me. There's a genderless Bible. The Bible I read is full of genders. It has, it has descriptions. There's blood in the Bible. There's blood of the innocent. There's blood of the guilty. There are wars in the scripture. There's evil and wickedness. In fact, the Bible says that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Wrap that around the current culture of what people think about God. Did he hate the man? No, I think he hated the disposition of Esau. He hated the disposition of Esau. He hated what Esau had done. Mm Mm-hmm. But God also didn't have much to say about the Amalekites who were a band of guerrilla terrorists. They would would not even grow crops. They would just wipe out people. They They would just murder, molest the women and wipe them out. That's why God spoke to Samuel and Samuel spoke to King Saul and said, Utterly destroy the Amalekites. Don't keep sheep, oxen, or goats. Kill all of them. But when... The prophet came back to find the the battle was done. He heard the bane of the sheep. And he said, what is that bane in my ears? And King Saul said, well, I kept Agag the king. And I, I kept the best of the flocks. And I kept the best of the rams and the lambs and the goats. And God said, utterly destroy them. And what we find out later is that the Amalekites came back to be another tormentor. The people to torment The Israelites. Okay. How are we doing so far? Have I just completely lost you that you don't know what to do? There's no fill, where's the fill in the blank? Write a blank next to the name. Let's do a little bit of this. How about, let's, let's get to Antipas. Let's get, let's get to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Um, Herod was subordinate on all the civil matters impacting the Roman province of Judea because he was the king of the greater, larger area of Galilee. Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect, P-R-E-F-E-C-T, the administrator, the prefect, the procreator, the procurator. And so, Herod Antipas is an interesting character. Um, He has authority, but he doesn't have all the authority. He has some jurisdiction in this matter, but really, in Jerusalem, it's Pontius Pilate that has the greater amount of authority. And so... Herod Antipas and, and Pilate are two reigning individuals. Pilate is the governor. He would be the governor of the area. And his job is to report back to Rome. And his, he wants to keep peace with Rome and with the people here. And this is really what, as I've spoken before, what Rome would do. They would build. They built highways, international highways of stone. They were. They understood um, commerce and trade, and the ability to conquer the world meant free trade. And so they would conquer so many places they didn't have enough people to to just wipe out or occupy a region. They they also wanted those regions to pay taxes back to Rome, and so in doing so, they built. Aqueducts and 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 what we would consider sewage plants, although they weren't really plants, but they were to discard sewage and waste um, and debris out of out of major metro, metropolitan areas, and to bring water in. Uh, massive uh, water aqueducts would had lined all had lined the the countryside all around those those conquered lands. They would allow them to keep their gods, whatever gods they had. And yet they would, they would set up the institution of Rome throughout the region. If any of you go to Israel or have been to Israel with me, you would see the facades of Rome. They would, they would have these massive amphitheaters just to boast of the greatness of Rome. Huge pillars, Roman pillars would be erected as, as a, an introduction into the complex structure of Rome, back in Rome. And so Rome has conquered Jerusalem, and and the days of Jesus Christ, he is living underneath the Roman Empire. Paul, he was not born in Jerusalem, but he was a Jew, his parents had migrated, and they uh, they were Roman citizens because they had paid the tribute to be that. That's why Paul could also claim to be a Roman citizen, even though Paul was fully Jew, he was a Jewish man. And so we've got these two men, Herod, who wanted to talk to Jesus. Herod wanted to talk to Jesus. In fact, the Bible says, long time, for a long time, or a long season, he wanted to interact with Jesus. In fact, he wanted to ask Jesus questions. He was really excited to see Jesus. Even though this was very bizarre, it was, it was in the night that he would find him. Maybe even what we would call, before the sun would rise, Herod wanted to see him. And then after the sun rose, Herod saw him. I'll get to the places where Jesus was in a moment. But, but Herod wanted to see him. Herod first heard of Jesus and thought he was John the Baptist. And he had what I would consider cold sweats broke out on Herod. He, he, had, he had a flashback. It was deja vu. It was, oh no, John has come back. See... Herod had great esteem for John the Baptist. If you want to know who the head of Herod was, it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he's not on your paper, you can put him on there if you want to. John the Baptist is the human plank. Watch it. He bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament together. There's only one other plank that bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And it's not an individual it's the pool where the water was stirred by an angel once a year. It's a remnant, a leftover remnant from a silent God that whoever stepped into these waters, swirly waters, will never. we won't find them again in the book of Acts. Those waters are never stirred in the book of Acts. No one ever finds it again. It's done. It's an old remnant of God's grace and mercy for the healing of the people. But then steps Jesus, in fact, there's no utterance of the, of the stirring of the water once Jesus steps up to the man that is withered and says, wilt thou be healed? And the man says, I have no man to put me in. John the Baptist is the human plank and John is a prophet and the people are distraught because John was gone, John had been killed and Jesus said, who did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a wavering weed, some spineless man? Did you go out to see that kind of? No, you went out to see him because he was a powerful man and told you the truth. And John the Baptist made all the Pharisees angry. They hated him. They hated him because he was drawing people out to him. He wasn't entering the city. He was a wild man. He ate, he ate things. He ate the bark off trees. He 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 was had he had clothes like it just was uncommon. It was uncouth. Wild locust and honey. Nothing was refined or grown. He, that would, basically, he would just mean that he he would eat things. Now, when we were in Israel, we we saw many. We've, we've seen this many times. But one of the trees would have a, it was it, they they called it a locust tree. It was like a and and there was like a little leaf you could eat off of it. So there's some 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 theory that, that that he didn't eat the bug, he was eating a, a, a leaf off a tree. John the Baptist, and he was, he was bold. He called them whited sepulchers. He'd point his finger in their face. And he would say, you're full of dead man's bones. Repent. Wow, he was... I'm certain you would not want him for a pastor. You probably want... You wouldn't want most of the disciples for pastors. You wouldn't want Peter. Every once in a while he'd say a cuss word. <laughs> That's not And Sometimes he'd be a little hypocritical. He'd condemn you about the people you're hanging around with. And then he'd go eat with them. That's in the Bible. Both of those are in the Bible actually. Yeah, we, we probably wouldn't want that. John the Baptist heard that. Herod fell in love with his sister-in-law and killed his brother to marry his sister-in-law. And everybody else just acted like it was normal. Well, he might have died of natural causes. He had it coming. There's no judgment here. John the Baptist would never have survived in an age of Twitter and Instagram. If he had an Instagram account, he'd be condemning everybody. Put your clothes on. That's what he'd be typing. <laughs> he'd type, <laughs> never mind, I better leave that, man. I, I got a whole lot of things that I could make up right now. Maybe I'll just do it. He was offensive. And he told King, King Herod, you are wrong, you're a sinner, you've killed your brother's wife. And of course, to save face, Herod puts him into prison. He's angry. No one's going to talk to me like that. And of course, in a drunken stupor, he makes a deal with the daughter of Herodias, his lovely wife and her horrid daughter. And the end of that is that when Herod said, you can have whatever you want, you dance so provocatively for me. What do you want? Up to half of my kingdom. He's boastful. He's drunk. He's in front of all of his nobility and all of his men, all the people, all the, all the other magistrates of Rome. And Herodias whispers to her daughter and says, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And the daughter stands forward and says, I'd like to have John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the Bible says that Herod was sorrowful. He knew this was not right. So when Jesus came on the scene and heard about the miracles and the power, he said, John the Baptist has come back. John the Baptist is the human plank. And Herod now knows it's not John the Baptist, but he wants to find out who is Jesus. You have to remember that in those days, we're dealing with a much more informed crowd about people because people would talk about what was going on. They were informed. Even though they didn't have the internet and phones, they communicated they communicated together. In fact, in Jerusalem at the time under Pilate, he had approximately six thousand soldiers, which means there would be uh, uh, there, there'd be a score uh, sixty uh, and sixty um, among that six thousand. There would be sixty centurions. Each centurion would be over hundred. We know of two centurions in the Bible. One centurion came to Jesus and said, I've, "My my 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 servant is sick. Would you come? Would you would you would you would you speak over him?" And Jesus said, "I'll come." He said, "No, just speak the word." And Jesus said, "I've never even seen this kind of faith." That centurion, we don't know, but it's a good odds that the centurion that stood at the cross of Calvary when Jesus died and said, "Surely this is the Son of God," he could very well have been the same centurion whose servant was healed by the Lord. If not, then there are two centurions. The Roman soldiers believed in gods, as I can describe to you in a moment. And now this God has died. When Jesus was taken in the garden, several things had happened before he got there. When he arrived in Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, there are three Major festivals, this is not in your paper either, the Jews always celebrated or observed the Passover, Pesach. Fifty days later, they would observe what we would know as Pentecost, the Feast of the First Fruit. That means you just had a harvest, you're going to give your first offering. Those two are in line with, the Passover is in line with their escape out of Egypt, the Passover, when they got out of Egypt 50 days after they got out of Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai and God gave Moses the tablets of stone. That's Passover. We call it Easter. It's really, it's really Passover. The word Easter was translated by some Englishmen. And so they gave us Easter and now Easter has become a, a, a season of, of candy and, and fun and family and all that. But really this is a, a season of Passover that we're about to enter. Passover happened first. That was to commemorate the greatest night that Israel had ever seen, the Passover. They escaped. That was the blood of a lamb. The Passover is found in the tabernacle. The first article that you get to in the tabernacle is the article of the Passover. The death of the lamb is the altar of sacrifice. For us, that is repentance When you repent, you're observing the first article in the Passover. The second article of consequence is the pool of water, the washing. After they sacrificed the lamb, then the next thing they went to after this massive altar, they went down from the altar and then they washed in this pool and there was, it was a beaten brass. It was a reflection and a washing pool. That is the second article of the Passover. That also happened when they went through the water and escaped. The Bible says that the Egyptians essayed to go, but could not because God drowned them with the water. He covered them with the water. What followed them was buried in the water. So we believe that Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What were the keys? Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost. Repent. That's the first article. That's the death of the lamb. That's when they killed the lamb, went into their homes, covered the doorpost of their homes, put the blood on the doorpost, and ate the lamb. Blood on the outside, lamb on the inside. And the death angel passed over, or the angel of death passed over them and didn't visit their home. They left. They went through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the Egyptians we're, we're, we're slaughtered by the water, covered in the water. Like Noah, just as Noah was saved by water, even baptism saves us. Repentance at the altar, baptism in the water. The first and the second, they're there in the tabernacle plan that was developed after Sinai. Moses received the articles there in Sinai. It's Passover, Pesach, and then it's Pentecost. Later in the fall... Is Sukkot. I won't describe Sukkot to you, but it's also a commemorative uh, of 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 the wilderness wanderings. Of course, there's a fourth one is Purim, but it's not. It's it's it, it, that's Purim has to do with Esther. So we'll we'll move on from there. But the the main three. Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover. They they will they will. Be together. And one week before the Lord is betrayed, he's teaching and he walks by a fig tree. And he curses the fig tree. Here's our loving Savior. Cursed the fig tree. Of course, if you look in the season, the fig tree was not in bloom because some things don't bloom in that season. But the Lord cursed it because it didn't have fruit. Why is the Lord cursing the fig tree? Because it doesn't have fruit. And the disciples are scratching their heads. But the next day they'll come back and the fig tree has dried up. Or at some point they come back and the fig tree is dried up. And Peter says, hey look, there, it happened. The fig tree. The Hebrews don't just believe that it was because the fig tree didn't have fruit. There's something on his way to Calvary. There's a curse that Jesus will give. One curse. He doesn't curse the Jews for killing him. He doesn't curse Caiaphas. He doesn't curse Annas. He has nothing to say. doesn't speak to Herod. I'll, I can tell you about that later, but you got to go listen to the sermon on her. Because I, I can't preach all this stuff right here, right now. Give me a break. <laughs> and he speaks to Pilate. He doesn't curse the Romans. In fact, on your paper, he is like a lamb led before her shears. He's dumb. That means he doesn't speak. He closes his mouth. He's not rebuking them. One curse. Why was the curse? The Hebrews believe this. The Jews believe this. They looked at that. These Jews that, I'm not talking about the ascetic Jews. I'm talking about the Jews that, that, have, that, that have embraced the Lord as the Messiah. They're understanding what's happening here. And some Jews have, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they do believe he was a prophet. And some of them would even uh, esteem him in some role. They're still looking for the Messiah. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they took the forbidden fruit and they ate it, their eyes are open and they realized that they had been naked. (laughs) And God will come. And they will hide themselves. Now, How does God come? He's come? He comes in the cool of the day. His voice walks with them. There's some, maybe not a theophany. We do not know really. But he communes with them. And the Bible says that they made for themselves clothes out of fig leaves. In fact, it doesn't describe basically the fig leaves. Some translations would say that we're not exactly sure. But it looks like fig leaves that they would clothe themselves with. They would cover their sin up. With this plant, the leaf of this plant, God would not allow that. In fact, God made the first clothes. He killed the first animals. Blood had to cover sin because Leviticus says the life of the body is in the blood. No sin can be covered without the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, the Bible says. Let me tell you where the blood is in the tabernacle. It's at the altar, it's in the water, and it's in the mercy seat. It's in every place. But the reason why we know... That we must be filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not just because John chapter 3 says so. Jesus said you have to be born again of the Spirit. The water and the Spirit. But also because when the blood was finally sprinkled on the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Which is the third major article in the tabernacle. When the blood was there. Finally sprinkled there. The cloud of glory would come down and consume it. The, the consuming of the blood did not happen at the altar. It did not happen in the water. It happened. I don't know if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not a true story, but, I, but they did have a nice box. A little large, but a good box. On top of that golden, in between those cherubims, where that blood, the atonement for the sins of all the people. The spirit of God, the cloud of glory, came down and consumed it, wiped it clean. That was the atonement. It lasted for a year. Each year they had to do it over and over and over and over again. Every year, that was the consummation, the final, the finality of sin being paid. It was at the altar. It was in the water, and it was in it was in the the ark of the covenant where the cloud came. Here's here's your salvation. It's in repentance at the altar. It's in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus. And it's in the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which is the cloud of glory. And Jesus walks by and curses that tree. I can only imagine that the great I am that I am, the dual nature of Jesus Christ, the ancient of days that dwelled inside of that body of clay, I could only imagine that he looked back and considered the first day that mankind fell and the attempts of mankind to cover his own sin by the leaf of that very type, kind of plant. And he walks on. They rent an upper room. The upper room they rented. This is interesting because the only other upper room we know is the upper room that they rented where they prayed. Now, there could be multiple different upper rooms in Jerusalem. There could have been multiple ones, but... It's ironic to me that not only did he have his last supper there, and they didn't know they were in the last supper. It was the Passover. They were having the Passover. Oh, man, time. And Jesus will eat the Passover. Judas will leave. But Judas has already been angry. Why is Judas angry? Judas is angry because... Also, within that given period of time, Mary has come and anointed Jesus. And Judas leans against the doorway and, and murmurs, This could have been given to the poor. We have spent all this. She gave all of that precious ointment, it's worth a year's salary. And Jesus says, Leave her alone. She anoints me for my burial, my death. There's something inside of him, the corrupt Judas held the bag. He was the treasurer. He was the the church treasurer. And he runs out, not only of that room, but he runs out of, of the Passover supper with the Lord. He is revealed. Still, the disciples have no idea what's going on. They don't know. The Lord goes to a garden, and there are many trees where they would have olive presses. And he goes to the place where there's an olive press and where there are olive trees. Once again, I can show you one of the olive trees that's there. The oldest one there still in the garden is 2,200 years old. There's a 1,700-year-old tree. There's a 1,400-year-old tree. There's an olive tree that's 800 years old. It's about this, this wide in girth. The 2,200-year-old tree could have been one of those smaller ones, a couple hundred years old. Jesus could have easily leaned against it in his time of prayer. All the disciples are praying. He brought Peter, James and John a little closer to him, <clears throat> because the Lord did not always think that equality was true. He'd had favorites. <laughs> so he said, "Hey, you guys go there. You ate." You three, I'm going over here. He's a stone's throw away from them. He prays. And in the night... See, the Sanhedrin council also had another rule. They never did examinations in the night. Ever. But the span of the Lord's examination and trials happened within a nine-hour time period before he was released to be killed. A mere nine hours. The Sanhedrin broke all kinds of laws... There were no witnesses against the Lord. It was illegal for Annas, who was not the high priest, but he held the power. He was the father-in-law. Remember, he's the older father-in-law. He's the 80-year-old man who has the money. They bring him to the house of Annas first. And then from Annas, the house of Annas, they go to the house of Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And his son-in-law is also wroth with the Lord, even though Jesus speaks to both of them. At the house of Annas, they have bound him, which is illegal. They cannot do this to bind him. He is a Jewish citizen. This is illegal in their, in their time. And during that moment, when the Lord replies to, to Annas, one of them nearby, he strikes the Lord. The Lord does not retaliate. So now I'm walking you through even more of these. I hope I get to all of, the, all of the, the, the people and the places here on your paper. He's in the garden, and from the garden he goes down in the night. They're led by a torch, some fire-lit guideway, some flashlight by fire. They get to the house of Annas, and he, he judges him immediately. That's the first illegal trial. He's not brought before the ruling high priest first, which is Caiaphas. And the intricacies of, of the politics of the period is important because he should have had a, a time to either defend himself Or have a witness on his defense. Simon Peter, the Bible says, and another disciple followed Jesus. We would assume that maybe that other disciple would have been John. John, the disciple John, is the youngest of the disciples. He's the youngest of them all. He's the only disciple that will stand at witness to see the execution of Jesus Christ through the duration of his death. The Lord Jesus will look down Through the bloody mix of sweat, a mix of blood and sweat, burning his eyes. And of the seven statements that the Lord says on the cross, one of them is to John. And he says, consider thy mother. And he talks about his own earthly mother. Because Jesus was committing Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Lord was committing Mary into the hands of John. Historians tell us that Mary will live with John for the rest of her life and his family. Though John is very young at the time. Another disciple waits. Clearly, Peter is distraught. He wants to know what's going on. He has forgotten the prophecy of the Lord that he would deny him. And there's an entrance into the courtyard. It's in the nighttime. Peter is there. He'll deny the Lord twice and then some time will pass before the third denial. It was not in consecutive order like we might find in in an Easter program. Annas is going to interrogate Jesus. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples' teaching. This was Annas. And he questions the Lord about his disciples. This is against the Jewish law for an accusation. It had to be substantiated by credible witnesses. There was not. And the Lord, of course... Does not answer the way that that he wants. That Caiaphas wants. In bound by hand, they will make Jesus go to the house of Caiaphas. Now, at that juncture, then now, Peter's second and third denials will concur. The Jews, uh, the Jews are going to note that that the time of. Uh, the, the time of the of of the the romans' work day will start in the morning early in the morning, and so their deeds are done under the cloak of night their deeds are done under the cloak of night, so from the house of Annas to Caiaphas and finally Caiaphas convenes the sanhedrin, and the sanhedrin council that was convened. We are known. We, are, we have been known and told that that can see can that convening of the Sanhedrin was not the seventy-one men. It was only twenty-three. Five of them were the sons of Caiaphas. One was the son-in-law, and the others were known to be cousins. It was a sham, and they convicted him by reason of guilt, even though there were no sustaining witnesses against Jesus. They contradicted each other. Now they're going to bring Jesus to the house of, of Pilate, and Pilate is going to be there. Some would assume that he's brought to Antonio's fortress, which is the Praetorium, Antonio's, Antonia's fortress. Others would believe that Peter, I'm sorry, that Pilate took up residence at the more pleasant place called Herod's Palace. It's a large area, and there, Pilate does not want to deal with them. So he'll ask, what charges are you going to bring? In the book of John, chapter 18, they'll reply, he's a criminal. They've already condemned him as a criminal. They've already circumvented all of their requests. There's no one that witnessed on behalf of Jesus Christ. And they have now condemned him in unity without anyone standing up for the Lord. They have no witnesses. They have no eyewitnesses. What are they going to appeal to? Now, they're not allowed to kill anyone. Now, there are mobs, but they're not allowed to kill anyone. We know that there are mobs because Stephen was stoned. We know that there are mobs that were outside of the jurisdiction of Rome. But the Sanhedrin council knew they were not allowed to kill anyone. They could also be in prison if they falsely killed someone, even in the jurisdiction of Pilate. We also know they took up stones to kill the woman caught in adultery. But that was to trap Jesus. And one by one, of course, they left. The oldest to the youngest. Are you still with me now? I I won't go too much longer. They charged him with being the criminal. But they couldn't charge him being a criminal. Just violating the Jewish custom. They had to charge him with the criminality or the crime against Rome. Pilate says, am I a Jew? It was your people, your chief priest who handed you over to me. He says to Jesus, what is it you've done? He's trying to cut to the politics. What have you done to get the high priest so mad at you? Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest, but now my kingdom is another place. Pilate says, you're a king then, you're a king. The Lord will answer as you've said or you're saying it right. The literal interpretation is something like this. I am a king, but those aren't the words I would have chosen. My kingdom is not of this world. It, it, so it, it, even though Jesus' statement is reluctant, it leads, to, it leads to maybe some unambiguous affirmations, kind of an odd mixture. But Jesus says, yes, but but not the way you think. Not the way you think. And so... Pilate says, you're a king, and the Lord says, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, I came into this world to testify the truth. Of course, now Pilate, being very systematic, very linear, uh, he says, well, what is truth? Well, what is the truth? And, And now Jesus will speak about truth for a little bit. He's having this dialogue. What is truth? Pilate, if you're on the side of truth, then you listen to my words like sheep hear my voice, follow me. But because Pilate is of the world, he doesn't care about searching for truth. And Pilate is a politician, he's wrapped up in power. He's caught up with the values of his world system. He's blind, he's cynical, he's even clueless. His wife speaks to him, she has a dream. Tells him, "Don't, don't bother this man, set him free, he's innocent. He should have listened to his wife. And all the men said amen. Okay, then all the women say amen. I was hoping the guys would. Pilate has the only one that is truth looking right at him. He's the Roman procur- procurator and, and he's about to hand out justice. So to appease the Jews, he's got to appease the Jews. So he says, your custom is that I would release someone in the criminal system. Let me give you Barabbas. Barabbas is a known and habitual criminal. His name could mean son of the father or perhaps son of the teacher or son of a rabbi. Can you imagine? He should have known he's a robber. He's a highwayman. He's a bandit. He's a revolutionary. He's an insurrectionist. He's a notorious prisoner. He's in and out of the jails and prisons. He, in the process, he's committed murder himself. All of the things Barabbas has done, he's a threat to the enemy of Rome, to the Jews, to their authorities, and yet the crowd has been coerced into chanting and yelling, "No, don't give us Barabbas, give us Jesus. We want Jesus." And so Pilate flogs Jesus. That's Plan B. He flogs him. So now a trial has this this, the third, the second trial has begun. Herod could get nothing out of him. See, he went from Annas to Caiaphas, from Caius to Pilate. Pilate didn't want to deal with him. He sent him over to Herod. Herod couldn't talk to him. Jesus would be beaten up but not scourged at the house of Herod. King Herod, there's no, there's no talking to King Herod. And the reason why, of course, you've got to go back to that sermon, but Herod already had his chance with John the Baptist, and Jesus is not going to talk to Herod at all. He won't say anything to Herod. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate because truly Pilate is the one who has the control. And now Pilate in the second trial of the Romans, Pilate now scourges the Lord. This is the, the beating of the Lord. It's an ancient world flogging was common. It's brutal. If there was ever a norm for the barbaric practice of crucifixions, the Romans had it. It, it began with flogging with a scourge tipped with glass, a, a whip. At the end of it was metal shards and maybe some glass. And men, men were professional. They could, they, they, could, they could beat someone and flay the bone. Others were flogged. If they weren't so good, they were flogged and they would, they would die. Some of them would be disemboweled by the flogging. It wrapped around their midsection. It wasn't just the stripes on his back. It was the stripes on his whole body. The whip wrapped around his torso and ripped his flesh all the way around from his back, his bones showed out. Read in your last scripture. This is the prophecy that David wrote I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of a joint. My heart is like wax, it melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou hast brought me to the dust of death. Dogs can pass me. Dogs, those were the Gentiles. The Gentile, Jesus even called the Sophronician woman a dog. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Who's the assembly? The great Sanhedrin council. The Pharisees, the people, they have gathered around him. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They looked and stared upon me. They parted my garments. Those were the Roman soldiers. They cast lots from my vesture. They did all of that. During those dark hours, the nine hour, the facade that was supposed to be a criminal counsel and a trial. And the man who would beat the Lord was obviously keen at his craft. That whip, the flogging tore deep down into the veins and the arteries. Right before the crucifixion, but he would stop. Right prior to the death of the prisoner. This would, this would mean that the prisoner would have the most pain. After the scourging came, came the mocking. Also inside the praetorium. John 19.4. You can look it up later. The soldiers have no love for the Jews. They hate the Jews also. So they take their opportunity to show their hatred for the Jews by ridiculing the Lord as quote unquote The king. They twist together a crown of thorns to put it on his head like it's a crown. They clothe him in a purple robe. And they, they go up to him and get in him. They slap him. They spit in his face. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. They strike him in the face. There's abuse. There's at least four kinds of abuse for the Son of God. The scourge, a crown of thorns, a robe, dressing him as a king, mocking him, the insults, the blows, all of those. The crown of thorns is probably to mimic a laurel, uh, the oak-leaf-platted crown that was given to victors in conquest of kings, honored individuals, Roman empires, emperors. It might have been maybe from the common thorn brush. <clears throat> We're not exactly sure, but it could have also been from the acacia. The acacia tree has large thorns. I've seen them with and and even one of them accidentally poked my finger the blood came out of it the large thorn so they'll put that robe on him it'll be on him from some for some time the robe will attach to his bloody body and when they rip it off it's like a scab being ripped off they will take a a a rod and put it in his hand like it's a scepter and they'll rip it from his hand and then beat His head and pound the crown of thorns deep into his scalp. Wounds will bleed profusely. The mocking of the soldiers repeatedly, the crowd yelling for his death. They will hail him King of the Jews. The irony of the situation is that Jesus is the King of the Jews, and not only the King of the Jews, but he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They'll hold him in a little prison area but it's not, and the prison area is a dungeon. They'll bring him out, and then they'll put him right before his death, right before they lead him to Golgotha. They'll put him in a little little area, a a pathway, large stones. I've been down into this little cavern where large stones. This is the, the pathway, the road of the Romans, and the Romans... They would play games, and one of the games was the game of kings. They would roll some dice. It was like a dice, and they would roll dice etched out in that old one-ton stone. Is the game of kings. It's very likely, we don't know this in the scripture, very likely that those Roman soldiers were once again playing the game of kings. And they would pretend that if they, if, 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 if they won, they would execute the man. But if he won, he would be set free. He was never set free. They played the game of kings. Little did they know they were playing the game of kings with the only king that would ever matter. Yes. I'm going to repeat that hopefully on Easter. I want to say it over and over again. Jesus is determined and he's a bloody mess. He's, He's lacerated from head to toe. Blood is streaming down his face. His, the Bible says his face will be so marred, his visage, so marred, he don't even look like a man. He looks, he looks like something strange. The grotesqueness of him. They're shouting to crucify him. Pilate declares him innocent. And he presents the Lord in a bloody state. He says, behold the man. Another meaning could be its Latin, homo." Look at this poor fellow. Or see how ridiculous your claim is. Look at the man. Behold the man. They recalled his self-designation, the son of man. Look at the man. Pilate, after they've screaming, he fears the scene might degenerate into a, a riot. He's concerned about his own position in the Roman Empire. And finally, he washes his hands. It's impossible to wash his hands. Think of the washing hands. I... I'm sorry to re- reference it again, but every person has, has, every person in this life has a, has a towel and a basin. Just hours before that, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and rinsed and, and dried them with a towel. And now, hours later, Pilate will wash his hands and dry them with a towel. One is meant to serve. one is meant self-justification. Everybody, everyone will either serve or they'll or they'll justify themselves. Everyone, all of us, all of you, you have a towel and a basin in your hand every day. You'll either say, it's not my responsibility, or you'll be a servant. Everybody. And he relinquishes it, and he says, crucify him. But he says, as for me, I find no basis. Pilate continues to maintain the Lord's innocent. You take him, you crucify him. There it is, right in the Gospels. He's mystified. He wants to know. He says, Jesus, don't you realize I have the power to set you free? I have the power to crucify you. And the Lord says, you have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Think of what the Lord's doing right there. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. He refuses to answer the questions. But he's even... Comforting, while he's a bloody prisoner, he's comforting the heathen governor. He's telling him, your sin is lesser than those. And Pilate is mystified. And now he will send him off to the northeast side of Jerusalem up to a place called Golgotha. Golgotha. I would would have you consider one thought, while Jesus is being tried there, he's on a place they called the pavement. In, in, in the Hebrew tongue, tongue, I'm sorry, in the Aramaic tongue, it's called Gabatha. It's the pavement, the stone pavement. That's where Jesus was being tried, on a large stone pavement. That word only has one other derivative in the Bible. And there's a name in the Bible that means pavement. Her name is Rizba. And the Bible says she guarded the lifeless bodies of her two sons. From the early spring to the harvest in the fall. She begged for mercy. It's where I preached the heart of Rizba. They will take him away. From the pavement. Mercy is on the pavement. The great king of mercy. Mercy. And then they will lead him to Golgotha's hill. Golgotha is a, is a hill that overlooked a busy intersection. That's where the Romans loved to crucify people. Because it got the most attention. The busiest intersection they could find. They wanted to put fear into the hearts of all the people who passed by. So in that intersection. Where men and women would travel. They would... Put the cross. This was a place where many, perhaps hundreds and hundreds of people have been killed. And because wood was in scarce supply, the cross of Calvary had been used many times before. But there was something different about this blood. It was the blood of the innocent lamb of God. The transom that he carried would be somewhere between 60 and 100 pounds. Let's say 80 pound transom. He didn't carry his old cross. He carried just the crossbar on his shoulders. It's too heavy for him. It's taking too long, winding his way. There's a man from Africa, Simon the Cyrene. He's from the upper part of Africa. And he's standing by. He's commissioned to help Jesus carry the cross. He's there for the Passover. He's there maybe with his own lamb or he might be one of them that would need to purchase one for his family. At the end of all of that, when they bring him to Golgotha, they lay him down and they they hammer the nails into his hands. But of course, it's not into his palms. Because the nails, if they were put into his palms... As he's lifting himself up to catch his breath. You see, they have whipped him and beat him so much that the trauma has, called flu- has caused fluid to fill his lungs. He'll have to lift himself up to clear himself. When he speaks, water will come out of his mouth. It's a gurgling sound. His lungs will be filled up with water. Every time he lifts himself up, it puts strain on his hands and his feet. The hands in those days also consider the wrist, in fact, If you drive the nail just underneath the palm, which is still considered the hand in those days, it will lodge in a way so that the, so that the nail will not rip out. They'll wrap his feet together and they'll put a nail through his feet. They'll bend his legs just enough so that the crucifixion will last longer. They want the Romans are skilled at torture. And so they put his hands not all the way out, but a little bit bent Somewhat bent and his knees somewhat bent so that when he pushes himself up, he can feel the nails scraping against the bones. His back is already filleted, ripped, layered, flayed open, and it will rip against the cross each time in those grueling hours as he struggles for breath up and down until finally the heart will give out. Jesus from the medical perspective, I'll preach it again sometime. He'll die of a, really of a broken heart. We know that actually medically because all of the prisoners, when they died, Romans wanted to make sure. They're also very superstitious. They wanted to make sure the prisoner would, would die. So they would break the legs of the prisoner so they could not raise themselves up again. To exhale and to inhale. Mostly to Exhale. And so they would break their legs just to make sure there was no way that that prisoner would be alive. But when, when the, when the Roman soldier came by to break the legs, he broke the legs of the thieves. But when he came by to break the legs of, legs of Jesus Christ, he thought him already dead and he simply took his javelin and pierced it through the side of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that blood and water flowed out from his side. The torn brutally beaten body of Jesus Christ will hang motionless on a cross, a used cross. When he dies, there's an earthquake. The sky becomes black. People get out of graves and are walking around Jerusalem, loved ones, Are walking around Jerusalem alive. The earth has rattled. The sky has has covered itself. Sun, the sun, as the poet once wrote, the sun has hid his face from the crucified Christ. The Sanhedrin has dispersed. The people have gone their way. And the people will exclaim in an irony to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. It's hollow. The irony, the sad lament of them all. They will pledge to Caesar because they have crucified him saying that Jesus would tear down the order of Rome and of all the temple that Herod had enlarged. They could not convict him on anything. They had no witnesses. They didn't fast in between the trial. They didn't do it in a three-day three period of time. Think of that. They wanted to purify themselves for the Passover all the while killing an innocent man. They bought him They bought his whereabouts for 30 pieces of silver. And what did they do with those 30 pieces of silver? They knew it was blood money, so they wouldn't put it into their own treasury in the temple. They even said, we can't take this money back. Even though, before his suicide mission, Judas Iscariot threw the 30 pieces of silver back. They're tumbling across the temple floor. They scooped them up, but they know it's blood money. So instead, they bought a field, a potter's field. It's the worst land you can buy. Because a potter's field is a field of the clay that could not be used. The potter will always try. He'll always try. He'll try to make that pot. And, 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 and if the clay doesn't form, sometimes with his own blood, water won't work. But with his own blood, some of the old Old pottery that the, the, the clay that would be used if he mixed a little of his own blood something about his own blood it was mixed in with the turning of the wheel the spinning of the wheel that clay pot could be formed if it couldn't be used finally after attempt after attempt the potter would toss that old worn out clay off over and past the window maybe over a fence line and there was a potter's field that was the field that was purchased with the 30 pieces of silver, the unused, where no fruit or foliage could grow. Yes. And Jesus Christ laid there on the ground because they begged for his body. And two men of esteem, two men of wealth, one of which was the midnight student Nicodemus, they brought 200 pounds. Most of it probably wasn't used on him, but they brought 200 pounds of precious substance. Tried to anoint his body quickly. It was running out of daylight. They didn't have time to go find a tomb and buy one. And Jesus was from Nazareth, they couldn't bring him back, so they found a borrowed tomb close by. We think we know where Jesus was laid. We think, maybe. Close by Golgotha in a rich man's tomb. A borrowed tomb. And in the morning, (laughs) after they had sealed that tomb and put Roman guards by it, When they sealed it, they sealed it sometimes with wax and a signet ring. When they sealed it, put two guards by it in the morning. After it was all done, the women came to see if they could anoint his body further. And they mused among themselves, who will roll back the stone, realizing we have no body of strength When they got there, the stone had been rolled back and an angel was there. And he said, why seek ye the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen.